Well, I wouldn't rush into it for just anybody. You've got to be in love. I'd rather be an old maid. Nobody would rather be an old maid. Jean, I'd like you to meet my two daughters, Teresa and Kitty. Always the wallflowers, I'm afraid. Hello. So pleased to meet you. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1986's For Love Alone. It is a movie that is not the Ivana Trump story, because if you search on IMDb, the title For Love Alone, you will find at the top of the list a 1996 movie of some kind about the Trumps. But we are not watching that, because we are watching the one from 1986, directed by Stephen Wallace, written by Christina Steed, who wrote the novel, and Stephen Wallace, who did the screenplay. It stars Helen Bidet as Teresa, Sam Neill as James Quick, and Hugo Weaving as Jonathan Crow. Now, I could not find a trailer easily for this movie. I'm sure it exists somewhere. And if I took some more time to do some digging, which I will need to do because I usually play the trailer in the middle of this episode while we go watch the movie, but I wasn't able to find one quickly to show you before we started. Okay. And as a consequence of that, I really have absolutely no idea what the deal is with this movie. I don't know what to expect. My best guess, just really out of the blue, is a romantic drama type. Well, here's the short summary from IMDb. It says, A poor young woman in 1930s Australia falls in love with a dashing but arrogant teacher who preaches free love and watered-down socialist precepts. She follows him to England, meeting a gentle banker en route. The film follows her relationships as they are transformed in England. Okay. I find that synopsis interesting, and I'm now looking forward to the movie a little bit, although it really doesn't sound like your kind of movie. No, it doesn't, but I'm open to new things. Yeah. You know, I'm willing to give movies a shot at least once. Well, we've certainly proven that with this hiatus project we do. I am looking forward to seeing Hugo Weaving. I feel like it's been a while since I watched a movie with him in it, and he always gives interesting performances. And as far as Sam Neill is concerned, Jurassic Park is more or less my experience with him. I never watched Event Horizon, but Event Horizon is not the kind of movie I would normally watch anyway, so there's another Sam Neill movie out of the way. I'm trying to think. I feel like I've seen seen Sam Neill in more than just Jurassic Park. I mean, his top four is Hunt for the Wilder People in 2016, Jurassic Park in 1993, Jurassic Park 3 in 2001, and The Piano in 1993. Well, he's done plenty of stuff. Oh, yeah. Just not a lot of things that I've seen. Well, you probably remember seeing him pop up when we saw Thor Ragnarok, because in the little stage play, he was the one dressed up as Odin. Ah, yes. Oh, he was in Hunt for an October as well. Well, yeah. I'm actually a little surprised that that wasn't the first thing that you brought up because that's well, one of your favorites, isn't it? Well, yes, but isn't Sam Neill one of those actors who gets confused with another actor that I can't remember off the top of my head? Probably. So I was protecting myself from making a mistake by checking his IMDb. I'm still not seeing Hunt for Red October in here because it's very long. There he is. Oh, For Love Alone was only a few movies before Hunt for Red October. It was only three years. Hmm. Yeah, doing a quick scroll through his movies, I really have only seen a couple. Jurassic Park and Hunt for Red October, which really surprises me. I mean, he's a big actor. 
How have I not seen more of his work? Then, of course, you got Hugo Weaving, which Lord of the Rings series, Matrix series, two big standout franchises. But he was also the man behind the mask in V for Vendetta, which was a very good role for him. And then, you know, he came back as Red Skull. So he likes to pop up and be bad guys from time to time. I don't think there's much more to say about this movie before we actually take the time to go watch it. So we'll put a pin in this for now. I'm hoping that I have a trailer to play somewhere in this interim. If not, I'll figure out something. I usually do. But when we get back, we will have watched this movie. I got it off of YouTube, so we'll see how that goes for us. And either way, we'll be back. Tonight on the CBS Sunday Movie, a story of triumph and tragedy from Ivana Trump's best-selling novel. Whoa, hold on. I specifically said we are not watching the Ivana Trump story. There's got to be a trailer that exists somewhere out there. Let me look around a bit. Really? Nothing? Ah, oh, hold on. Uh, all right. Um, I don't know. Let's just listen to the rest of the CBS trailer and then we'll get back into this. She went from poverty and heartache, forced to give away her only child. I've lost everything. But with hard work and dedication, she achieved a wonderful life of wealth and romance. All her dreams coming true. Marry me! She had the perfect wedding, a magnificent home, everything. When suddenly her dreams were shattered. Now, she must search for the one thing that money can't buy. I want my son. From her bestseller, Ivana Trump's For Love Alone, premieres next. All right, and we're back. Julia, what is your initial reaction to For Love Alone from 1986? Well, um, I'm kind of having a hard time forming a first opinion because... I think the movie on the surface isn't a great movie. I think to find the greatness in it, you gotta look under the surface. So I think it requires some analysis to enjoy the movie more. I don't really have a problem with this movie. Not really. I mean, I got to the end of our last movie and I was like, what was all of that? And I got to the end of this movie and I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, that was a thing. I'm, I, I'm not bothered by it. It didn't offend me in any great way. And considering that we were watching a recorded off of television recording that was uploaded to YouTube and still had some weird cut the commercial out edits to it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's not bad. I was impressed with the quality, knowing that it was a VHS recorded off TV. I was expecting a bit lower mm -hmm. quality. So I was impressed. Yeah. For anyone who's pulling up the two hour YouTube video, keep in mind, this movie is only an hour and 37 minutes. Yeah. Like the last time we pulled a movie off of YouTube, the video length was much longer than the actual movie. Mm -hmm. You're slapping stuff on the back end. You got to stay one step ahead of the algorithm somehow. That's true. So should we get into it? Yeah. All right. I took four pages of notes this time around because not every scene was super long and typically I start a new block of text in my notes every time a new scene starts and some I had to actually like just 
lumped together into one paragraph. So that's why I have so many notes. But we start off this movie with Helen Bidet's character, Teresa, and she is meeting up with Harry in a train station and they are taking a train out of London to visit, I'm assuming, Oxford. And this is a romantic getaway. It felt like it wasn't meant to be a romantic getaway, but that they were going away for some other purpose and decided to stay an extra night in Oxford to shack up, basically, Mm -hmm. to put it crudely. Now, we don't know much about either of them at this point. This is sort of the cold open. Them leaving London, getting on a train, going to Oxford, walking around the college, getting drinks and dancing in the bar, and then going upstairs to, as you said, shack up. Yep. And the movie really starts the next morning when Teresa steals the blanket off the top of the bed and decides to go sit by the window and just think about her life leading up to that point. Yeah. Now that I think about it, like I said before, analysis is going to make me like this more. When she, at the very end of the movie, when she gets back to the train station to her fiance, she says things like, I know now more than ever how much I love you and this is what I really want because she spent this time reflecting on the story of her love life. Mm -hmm. And that's what this movie is. It's the story of her love life. How she went from a bright-eyed, idealistic young woman in Australia to someone who went halfway across the world. And you could say that she realized her ambition. Yeah, I think so. So... That's kind of nice. This movie has an arc to its main character. Oh, which is... More than I can say for our last hiatus movie. Yeah. Can I do a quick sidetrack note? thing. I feel like we were really harsh on a boy and his dog. I want to give it more credit, but the more I think about it, the more it's like, no, I feel like our analysis was pretty spot on. Yeah, this format can be hard sometimes because we're literally recording our thoughts minutes after watching the movie. Yeah. We're not taking time to reflect. We're just talking about our initial thoughts. But even after some time has passed since watching that movie, it's still a horrible movie. I'm still very conflicted about a boy and his dog, so <laughs> I felt a little bad spending all of that time talking about that movie in the way we did. And yeah, I just, I, I still can't get behind it fully. So back to For Love Alone. I just had to throw that in there. It's been bothering me ever since we talked about a boy and his dog. But anyway, we flash back from Teresa sitting by the window to her several years earlier, still living on Australia with her sister and her brothers and her father. And they are getting together on that particular day for a wedding. One of her cousins is getting married. And it's in this first little chunk of scene that you recognized a familiar face that I forgot to mention at the beginning of this recording. Yeah. And it took me a while. Well, I didn't figure it out on my own. You had to tell me. I'm like, I know that face. Where do I know that face from? I was about to go to IMDb. It's Hugh Keysburn. Yeah. The toe cutter. Yeah. Plays Savannah Nix's dad. And he's very clean cut. His hair is actually styled like a normal person. He's not (laughs) playing a biker in any sense of the word. Like when we saw him in Stone, he was a biker. When we saw him in Mad Max, he was a biker. A lot of the instances where we see him, he's this wild man. But no, here he's just an ordinary guy living on his own with like four kids that are all in various stages of teenage slash adulthood. I'm a little baffled by the family dynamic. Mm Mm-hmm. In this first scene, they seem to get along. They seem playful with each other, but in an affectionate way. And as we see this family dynamic develop, it becomes very toxic. I think coming into this scene for a wedding, everyone's in good spirits. So everyone's going to be 
happy and on their best behavior. But as is typical with a family gathering, we're going to see cracks appear. Yes, is very typical. One cool detail about this wedding is that they're having it on a boat, which seems fun. Yeah, they really don't let us know like what part of Australia they are in. They do live on the coast, and it seems like riding the ferry is a regular part of their lives. And taking the train is a regular part of their lives. Mm -hmm. So they're all there at the pier. They're getting onto this boat. The bride goes by in her veil with their groom and everyone's throwing rice because they're going to the reception on this boat. And before they get on there, a young Hugo Weaving shows up. And I'll admit... I look at Hugo Weaving now and I'm like, oh yeah, he's always been an old man. But no, here in 1986, he was 26 years old. Wow, the same age as his character. Yeah, Hugo Weaving was born in 1960 and Helen Bidet was born in 1962. They were only two years apart. That is refreshing. You don't see that a lot, mm. romantic leads being so close in age. So he shows up to the pier and he's like, hey, Teresa, are you coming to my lecture or something like that? And she's like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm coming to your lecture. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, because isn't she enrolled in his class? I never really got a sense of exactly why she's showing up to these lectures, but I think, yeah. So, of course, she's going to show up to his lecture. So, him showing up specifically to ask her if she's going to be there, well, yeah. It's very flirtatious. It is. In a very teenager-y way. Teenagers who don't have the freedom to go out to see people socially, their one recourse is school. Am I going to see you in school tomorrow? Well, of course you are. Why wouldn't I be in school? But for young teenagers... So are they supposed to be teenagers at this point? Because no. I got the sense that, no, they were pretty much in their 20s. Yeah. Probably I early think, 20s. I think Teresa was, she could have been as young as 18 or 19. Yeah. And Jonathan, probably in his early 20s, maybe 22, 23. Yeah. Something like that. I believe he had a bachelor's degree and was teaching with that bachelor's degree. Yeah. And then as the story progresses, he goes back to London to study for his PhD. And we know at one point that Teresa is working as a school teacher. So there's so that. 18 or 19 might be a little young because she has to have had time to get a certain level of education, a teaching certificate. Yeah. But this is also the 1930s. They have different standards. Right. So what I'm basing that knowledge on is... Anna Green Gables, uh -huh. who as soon as she graduates from that time period's version of high school, she's like 16 and she goes for a two-year teaching certificate. She does an advanced class where she completes it in one year. So in the early 1900s, she's teaching by the time she's 17 slash 18. Mm -hmm. So I think Teresa could be 18 or 19. This whole talk of age and marriage really comes to the forefront as we are on the boat at the reception, people are dancing around, they're laughing, they're having a good time. Teresa's dad is dancing with this other woman and it's implied that they are going to get friendly, although she never comes back. That's sort of a thing that happens for two seconds and is immediately dropped from the forefront. Yeah, it's not even made clear that their mother is not in the picture yeah. until later when they're arguing about love and the dad, I believe his name is Andrew, yeah. is talking about when your mother was still alive, we were great lovers mm -hmm. sort of thing in front of the woman he's trying to court, by the way. Yeah, it's kind of weird. As Teresa and a relative of hers named Anne are standing off to the side, I believe it's Anne's mother shows up. 
Yes. And she's got a drink in her hand, so she's probably been throwing back a few. And she's the mother of the bride. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's Anne, Anne the bride? and No, no. no Anne, Anne is the friend. No, no, no. Anne is the sister of the bride. Oh, okay. So as the sister of the bride, there is a particular awkwardness about attending your sister's wedding when everybody is wondering when you are going to finally get married Mm -hmm. and throw a little bit of alcohol in there and yeah that's a horrible horrible situation although you could argue that even when alcohol is not involved you still have people who lack a certain thing called tact Uh uh-huh and long story short because of the mother of the bride talking to the sister of the bride in such a way the sister runs off and ends up like bawling in the bathroom that sounds about right and Teresa has to like track her down and be like hey it's okay you know reassurance But not before she has an interaction with her own sister, pretty much talking about the same subject, how they're never going to find men, they're never going to get married. And then their dad comes along and pretty much says the exact same thing. Yeah, there's this concern about being married by a certain age. And Teresa is very adamant she is going to marry for love alone. Although they don't actually use that phrase until later on in the movie. We do actually get a roll credits moment. I don't think I wrote down exactly where it happens I but someone Andrew actually does it. say that on the ride home on the train ride home yeah I'm pretty sure he says it nice so Teresa rejects this idea of just marrying for position mm-hmm. or societal security or anything like that and the people around her at this point they're mostly her family all have different opinions on the subject mm-hmm But I don't think that those opinions are established enough to be very clear. Even now, and I think I'm referring mostly to her father, Andrew, even now I'm not sure what his views are on the subject. He talks about how the mother of his children, which I'm not sure was his wife, I'm not sure they were married, were great loves. Mm -hmm. But now he's just looking for somebody to be his wife. It's very odd. He's flip-flopping. On the train ride home, her dad pretty much says that love has nothing to do with marriage. That marriage is an agreement or something like that. It's... I didn't note down the specifics of what he was saying, but Teresa is just rolling her eyes the entire time as he's talking like this. And it's becoming more and more clear that Teresa does not get along with her father. She's a bit of a romantic as opposed to his cynical realism. Yes. And his disappointment that his daughters aren't more social. Mm -hmm. After they get off the train, Teresa decides to walk home instead of riding home with everybody else. And we get a lovely little montage of her walking along the bay and seeing all of the different people there. She runs into her brother, which I guess he didn't have to go to the wedding. I guess not. Which it's a shame that he didn't. Because there were not enough men to go around for the dancing. When we were back at the wedding and we were kind of panning around watching the goings on, there were couples on the dance floor and then just rows of women standing around the edge. There were not enough men to go around. So it's a shame that her two brothers weren't there. Mm -hmm. And of course, as... She's walking along the water. She's, of course, thinking about Jonathan Crow, played by Hugo Weaving. I guess I can see the attraction. He's a very dashing young man. Okay, you know who young Hugo Weaving kind of reminds me of? Who's that? The comedian John Mulaney. Yeah, I definitely see that. Especially in this movie where he had a very clean, well-kept haircut, which 
that's what John Mulaney wears. So yeah, I definitely see that tall, thin. Although young Hugh Weaving in this movie is nowhere near as witty or entertaining as John Mulaney. He's actually quite the wet blanket. Wet blanket is a really good way to describe him. He's not actually charming or entertaining or witty at all. Mm -mm. You know what? I was about to say, I don't know what Teresa sees in him, but I do know what Teresa sees in him. He is older. He is more experienced. He's educated. He's very handsome. He's handsome. He speaks in a very modern way that is very attractive to a woman who feels the modernness like deep down inside her but she can't let it out yet. And she knows she can't let it out. She is trying to subdue it. Mm-hmm. And every time she does let it out, it just ends up in arguments and disaster. That's a good thing to bring up because when Teresa does return home, she's talking to her sister about the wedding that they were just at. And her father and her brother arrive home and her father is super catty. Oh my goodness, he is. Yeah, talking about how if she doesn't smile every once in a while, she's never going to catch a man and all this other stuff. And he's very biting with it. And it was kind of weird to see Hugh Key's burn like that. But, you know, that's the character. <laughs> there was definitely some hint at the toe cutter flare. Andrew was kind of going off on a series of insults. And as he was doing so, his posture was becoming more and more haughty. And it felt very toe cutter esque. And the way they filmed it with the shadows, and it was just accentuating how right he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. But for a father to speak to a daughter that way was very disturbing. I can imagine a brother speaking to a sister that way because siblings treat each other like that sometimes. Yeah. Purposely saying the things that you know will hurt them the most. But parents aren't supposed to speak to their children children that way. Even if you're arguing, you don't go out of your way to find things that are going to be as nasty as possible. And that's what he did. That causes Teresa to run upstairs and be very offended by what he's talking about. Rightly so, I think. We go from there to Jonathan's lecture. He is standing in front of a group of women and he is talking about gender politics in this semi-modern era. I think it doesn't technically become the modern era until 1956, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's still prior to World War II. Exactly. But he's talking about how the society is forcing women to get married at an early age and it's ruining their chances at becoming educated and professional and how one of his solutions for that is just to take educated women and give them the seed of educated and informed men so that way they don't have to take time away from their studies to find a mate they can just be given a mate and therefore have an intelligent child and it's so typical of a guy who's just so all up on himself trying to talk about these gender politics things of which he has zero actual knowledge yeah it actually reminded me a lot of a boy and his dog because the gender politics of the down under are for very different reasons but are that the women are artificially inseminated because having kids is more important than having a mate Mm -hmm. and to them that's a real concern they have a very limited society their gene pool is shrinking and they have to do something about it So it's for very different reasons. It's just an interesting similarity between the two. It does feel particularly male, which I know in making that statement, I'm doing the same thing to men that he does to women and making generalizations, that he thinks that the time-consuming part of a woman's life is chasing down a man. Yeah. And that she'll have children and then be able to return to her academic studies. Well, okay. Having children now takes up a lot of time. Children are time-consuming. And one reason that we pair off 
is so that there are two people to carry those burdens. So now with his plan of artificially inseminating women so that they can have the fulfillment of having a child, now they're doing so without a mate, without a support system. And they have to rely on each other, their families, just the same way single mothers and single fathers do today. And it's difficult. Why purposefully do that is beyond me. Given the time period that they are in, where in that time period, the women stay home, take care of the children, the men go out, get jobs and pay for the household. It's essentially the cornerstone of how John sees the world. He looks at marriage as a transaction. The men get the women's body so that they can have children and the women get the men's property so that they can have security. And that is something that completely taints his worldview. And so when he's standing up and giving all of these grand speeches of his philosophies and whatnot, they're tainted by that idea that marriage and thereby love is a transaction, that it is a trading of goods and services and that there is no inherent emotion involved. And Teresa's whole thing is that no, there is emotion. There is an idea called love that exists in the world and she is dedicated to finding that and getting fulfillment through love in her life. And Jonathan is just completely opposite. At some point early on, Teresa has coffee with one of his co-teachers. Uh, Alice. Alice, yes. And they're talking about Johnny and Teresa recognizes that he is interested in her. She has enough wherewithal to see it and to believe it. She's not playing coy. She knows that he is interested in her and she senses that he is the doorway to a greater life. And I think the only reason she initially pursues him is to gain access to that greater life. I think she's also just generally enamored with him though. Yeah, I guess so. She looks at those qualities that you listed off earlier and she sees something that is obviously not there, but because she's got it in her mind that it is there, she's going to go after it. And she does go after it very effectively. If if this had been anybody but Johnny, they would have been married halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. But he's such a stick in the mud. They go out on a picnic and John is sitting there like pontificating about his opinions on marriage and things like that. And she's like trying to like hold his hand kind of she's trying to change him she's trying to initiate physical contact and he is having none of it so annoying. We get this lovely little vignette of her and a couple of, I guess, her friends, and they are looking through this book of what they deem as naughty caricatures. It's classic art. Depicting human sexuality. But depicting female human sexuality, right. which is Teresa's problem. And Teresa's like, where are all the dongs? I want to see those dongs. She's the kind of person that's watching Game of Thrones and be like, there's boobs everywhere. Where's the D? Show me that Jon Snow D. Yeah. And her friends are scandalized. They're like, oh my gosh, you can't just say things like that. <laughs> and, and Teresa's like, I want to find a lover. And her friends are like, oh my God, don't call him a lover. Call him a sweetheart. It's so much better. <laughs> and it's funny. Just, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah. Very much so. I remember as a kid, there was this family that we knew well. And the mom, I can't remember under what circumstances, but it was, you know, probably having a conversation about this subject with her children saying, when media calls it making love, they're mislabeling it. They're not making love. They're having sex. And there's a difference between having sex and love. And ideally, in a perfect situation, they would be the same. But that's based on my own values. Everybody's values are different. But the two shouldn't get mixed up. You can 
can have sex and not be in love and you can be in love and not have sex. And I think Teresa realizes that, but she wants them both. Mm -hmm. And she realizes that a part of being in love is having sex, but they're not mutually exclusive. Later on, Teresa and John, they're walking along by the water and they get to a point where Jonathan is about to kiss Teresa, but he stops suddenly because somewhere... Further on down the beach, there's a couple that have been fooling around and they giggle and scurry off. And I was really confused by all of this. It's just the fact that they were walking along and the point where they decided to stop for some reason also happened to be close by to a spot where another couple were fooling around. And so John gets cold feet. He wimps out. He stops trying to kiss Teresa because he sees this other couple doing a lot more and suddenly he's embarrassed. Yeah, what confused me about this whole thing is first of all, Teresa was not at all embarrassed. She was like ready to go back to the kissing like oh that was we why didn't we why'd we stop yeah she let's wanted, keep going i want to kiss somebody she wanted to hugo for it yes and for all of johnny's lecturing about human sexuality and how love isn't real only lust is real to be embarrassed by other people's lust in close proximity to himself and his own lust is baffling. Yeah, he's got some issues that he never really works out, I think at least. He's so embarrassed by this situation that he's like, I need to get home as soon as possible. Uh, is there like a quicker way than just walking? And so Teresa brings him to the wharf and she basically sits him down at the wharf and says, hey, listen, I have these intense feelings for you. I pretty much love you. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm poor and I'm now good and all this other stuff. It goes back to that idea of marriage being a transaction to him. And he looks at the idea and he's like, well, there's no point to it because there's nothing that I have to offer. She puts herself out there, I think, in a very graceful way. She says, there's something I have to say. I know you're leaving soon because he's going to London to work on his PhD. But I can't have you leave for perhaps ever and not say this. And that's a very own your feelings sort of thing. Mm -hmm. He professes to be a modern man and she is... 10 times the modern woman that he is. Oh, absolutely. This is the classic situation where, girlfriend, why are you wasting your time on this guy? Yeah, and that's basically what the last half of the movie is about. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like that's what this whole movie is about. <laughs> he kisses her on the cheek, gets on the ferry, and then goes. And then I think the next day or a few days later, Teresa's out to lunch with Alice and some of her friends, and apparently there was a going away party that Teresa just wasn't invited to. Yeah, that is harsh. And she gets a letter, I think three weeks after he leaves, basically saying, I hope you understand why I didn't invite you to my party. And it's like, ah, come on, guy, just he's such a mm. John is lame. I don't like him. No, because he does that to Teresa. And then he starts complaining about how cold and miserable London is. And it's like, ah, the dude just loves to complain. He's a freaking martyr. He sees himself as a martyr, at least. Later on down the movie, Teresa accuses him of being a masochist. And his reply is, no, I'm a sadist. And then he goes on to generalize because that's how he ends every 
conversation is mm-hmm. that women are masochists and men are sadists. Now, masochism is when you want to bring pain to yourself. A sadist is when you want to bring pain to everybody. Yeah. Okay. So with Jonathan in London and Teresa still in Australia, she continues to work as a school teacher. She writes letters to Jonathan and she talks to Alice about how much she wants to go to Europe and pretty much make John love her. That is now her goal in life. I do appreciate the bit of open eyes with which she sees John just a little tiny bit. She's not fooling herself that he loves her. She knows that he doesn't. And she wants the chance to convince him otherwise, Mm -hmm. which is where her eyes shut again. Yeah. But it's not like her sister Kitty, who has found a job being a housekeeper to a widower and his kid, Mm -hmm. who goes into it being like, oh, well, we're going to end up getting married because he's single and I'm going to go be his housekeeper. She thinks it's practically a done deal and it doesn't turn out that way. No, Teresa is super on board with Kitty's plan to do this and even helps her sneak out of the house. But fast forwarding to the point where Teresa leaves Australia, Kitty still hasn't been able to realize that goal. She's still just working as the housekeeper. So they have these wild plans that they try and enact and sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't, sometimes something else happens. Yeah. So in an effort to raise money faster, Teresa stops being a school teacher and she starts working in a hat factory. And one of the ways that she saves money is she walks, what, like the four miles four to miles. work? Yep. In the morning and at night. And she doesn't go to the picture shows. She doesn't buy newspapers. She doesn't go to restaurants or anything like that. All she does is sleep, eat, work in order to set aside money so that she can go to London. Yeah, on the eating thing, her dad accuses her of starving herself for the love of a man. And when she does get to London and see Johnny again, he does comment on how thin she's grown. Is she not eating? She's probably like skipping lunch because the only options are to go out to a lunch table or something like that. A lunch counter. Is what okay. I meant to say. I kind of wish that had been a little bit better explained. They did a good job showing us the lengths that she was going to to save money. Yeah. They made a big deal about the walking to work. And she did that for, what, three years? Three years. Something like a thousand some odd days. Yeah. But I kind of wish if they were going to accuse her of starving herself and note how thin she was, I kind of wish they had shown her like being invited out to lunch and her saying, no, thank you. I'm going to work through lunch. Something to indicate that she's skipping a meal because that meal would cost her more money. Yeah. They seemed to skip over that three years very quickly. They did it in voiceover, and I liked that. There was a lot of voiceover, which is great because Helen Bidet has a great voiceover voice. She was very good at it. One of the ways she described that time kind of stuck with me a little bit is that she became numb and separated from everything around her. Her friends, her family, they all became separate things. She was so driven to save money and go to England that nothing else mattered, which is a shame because she spent three years of her life cut off from everything. I'm noticing that a lot of the things in this movie that I'm critical of are things that happen to normal people every day. That's just the circumstances of their life. And for her, because she doesn't have to do those things, I'm critical of her doing them voluntarily. When there's plenty of people who don't have the luxury of a social life, who just to put food on their table and to heat their home, they have to do nothing but work. And people who have to skip lunch because they simply don't have the money. As you mentioned, 
Teresa's father is upset at the idea of her taking all of her money and going to England. Apparently, he never realized why she was working so much in the three years that she spent working at the hat factory. And he accuses her of abandoning the family. She is of the opinion that the family isn't worth sticking around for because he'll just fill the house with other people anyway. Yeah. Even before Johnny came along and she fell in love with him, she was still saving to go to school elsewhere. Mm-hmm. She wanted to go to, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Sorbonne? Sorbonne? I think it's the Sorbonne. Yeah, in, which uh, is in uh, France, right? Yep. That's where she wanted to go to school. So she was already saving. So I don't know why this was such a surprise. Good old dad. Yeah, I don't know. But after three years of working, we get another letter from John who is writing Teresa saying that he's looking forward to her arriving in London and Teresa gets a nice little send-off party and she gets on the boat and leaves Australia. Seeing this boat ride, I now understand why it took her three years to save for it. It was um a very nice cruise. It's a very comfortable cruise. Yes, which is the lifestyle she's accustomed to. So, of course, that's what she wants. And it's a very long crossing. So mm. if you can afford to make it any more comfortable, then go for it. I'm assuming they left from the east coast of Australia. They went through the Panama Canal, mm-hmm. took on more passengers in Panama, and then continued on to England. Yes. In Panama, when they took on more passengers is when what's-his-name comes on. What's his name? Sam Neill, who plays James Quick. So that's when James Quick boards the boat and he is assigned to her dinner table. Mm -hmm. Sam Neill, for anyone keeping track, was born in 1947, which makes him 15 years older than Helen Bidet. 47, add three to 50, plus another 10 to get to 60, plus another two. Yeah, that's 15 years. Yep. And he is kind of a dweeb when he first shows up. He goes to the table where Helen Bidet's character is sitting and he has... A very outgoing and bold style, but Teresa notes in her voiceover that he's obviously doing it to cover up some sort of shyness or loneliness that he has. Mm-hmm. He's a fake it till you make it sort. Mm-hmm. And Teresa is really the only one that responds to his arrival. Everybody else at the table is very dismissive of him. And it turns out that James Quick was born in Singapore, raised in England, and spent a lot of his time in America. Yes. And he is a banker. Which all sounds very boring. But despite him asking the question, oh, well, I'm from all these places, what does that make me? Teresa says, oh, you're well-traveled. She seems to be at least a little intrigued by how much moving around he's done in his life. Mm -hmm. It's the one detail that really stands out initially. Which is exactly what she wants for her life. She wants to travel around Europe and see the world. They have a quick little interaction. Later on, there's a some sort of outdoor game involving throwing a ring over a net. I've never seen it before, and I didn't quite understand it. It seemed like a really lame version of a toss game played by gentlemen on this boat. And... It's here that James gets to see what kind of literature that Teresa reads, and she doesn't really seem to be all that interested in him. She rather brushes him off because she well, still has, you know, her fascination with John, and he's yes. a stranger. Well, it doesn't help that he tells her a dirty limerick. Yeah, he, he's he got a fascination with limerick, and he thinks that he's being charming, but... She's not impressed. Not really. And he was like, oh, okay, you sure you don't want to play this game with me? You're lost. <laughs> he doesn't seem really all that phased by her disinterestedness. Yeah. So later on, they're at a table, they're playing cards, and they start talking about this concept of love. And 
later on that evening, James talks about how his ex-wife never truly loved him and they've been separated for a long time. I say ex-wife, they're not officially divorced yet. No. They've been separated, but they are more or less apart and she doesn't have the genuine feelings for him that he had for her and now they're just apart. It's an interesting parallel because that dynamic is exactly the dynamic of the newly wedded couple that we saw back in the beginning of the movie. The bride's mother makes comments because she's three sheets to the wind that there's more affection on his side than hers, Mm -hmm. but she is looking for security. That's exactly what happened to James. And he comments that they were happily married for 10 years, but it still, even after all that time, it was still never going to work. Because the affection was not double-sided. Yeah. So it may seem to work in the short term and medium term, but in the long term, it's still not going to work. And Teresa reveals that she isn't quite sure that John knows what love is. That she looks at John and she evaluates him as being just so academic that he can't grasp the concept the same way she does. Yeah, I think her intention is that she is going to open his eyes and teach him how to love. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, she thinks she's going to change him. So she gets to England, and John is there at the harbor to pick her up, and as they're all departing the boat, James swings by and says goodbye to Teresa, and John's, of course, like, oh, who is that? Blah, blah, blah. And Teresa's not shy. Oh, that's James. I met him on the boat. He's a banker. He has all these bohemian friends, and blah, 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 and he offered me a job, and I'm sure he's got a bunch of friends that you might want to meet, things like that, and John is very non-interested in making friends with these bohemians. This whole first day, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what's happening. And at the end of it, Teresa lays down on her bed looking satisfied and hopeful. Mm -hmm. I would have been crying. Mm -hmm. Because the train ride back from the harbor to London, John's sitting there and he's like complaining about world politics and how he's very concerned about Adolf Hitler and everything in Germany is not quite going to plans and whatnot. And Teresa's just loving being there with John. And he's his regular gloomy self. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really care that he's with this woman who he knows loves him. And I think he does on some level have an affection for her, some sort of connection to her. And he does not care. One nice thing that Jonathan has done is he's found a place for Teresa to stay. He made arrangements for her to have an apartment in this house for women tenants, woman tenants. And it's one of those things where you've got a mistress of the house and she's like, oh, no, no men after 9 p.m. And rent is due promptly Friday evening and all of this other stuff. Yeah, I was actually surprised that they were allowed to have men in their room at all. They're probably not really, which is one reason why Jonathan invites Teresa back to his flat. Yeah, she's in her room for all of five minutes before he's like, okay, let's go. Mm -hmm. And so they go back to his place. And as they walk in the house, they come face to face with the housekeeper. Yeah, what's her name again? I don't remember her name. Shoot. But Jonathan is extolling how much pity he has on her because she has these terrible sleeping conditions and she has a child from some other relationship and how terrible her situation and how he feels for her and all this sympathy and whatnot. And they go upstairs and, you know, Jonathan is sleeping in a single room in this house. He's got his little waistband. He invites her to make herself at home. And then she finds this pile of photographs some from the same photographer, of other young women who have sent him letters and photographs because they remember him from when he was in Australia. Yeah, and this is the first 
clue that we have that he's playing her. He tears up Alice's picture very cruelly. It's like, oh yeah, we got along well, but she's gone now. So I don't really care to remember her and tears up her photograph. Mm -hmm. And then he's digging through this box of letters that he's got from people and he finds some from Teresa. And because Teresa has this aspiration to be a poetry writer, he starts reading off from one of her letters, a piece of poetry that she's written. And of course she's embarrassed by it. And she chases him out of his room into the hallway out onto a balcony and he's reading this poem in a rather mocking way and as they get out onto the balcony he tears it up and he tosses it out into the yard and of course down in the yard is the housekeeper doing the laundry munching that she now has to clean up that mess that he just made mm-hmm. but as they go back into the building john grabs Teresa by the shoulders presses her up against the wall and then kisses her it was really dark it was and that's exactly what happened by the way this is their first kiss it's super awkward it is because after he does it he backs away and moves down the hallway and in a later scene he apologizes for doing that it was very uncomfortable because she clearly did not want to be kissed. She tried to push him away and he overpowered her. Yeah. So it was very uncomfortable, but she doesn't really seem to think much of it. No. In fact, as you said before, she goes back to her room at the end of the day and she seems very satisfied with how that day went. That was a horrible day. That was all the day that she arrived in London. Mm -hmm. She woke up that morning on a ship. I'm surprised she had so much energy after going around the world, but I'm sure when you're on a boat, there's more time to adjust to the time difference. Yes. So the next morning, Teresa visits James at the bank to inquire after that job he mentioned, and he pretty much hires her on as his secretary. Mm-hmm. And so Teresa goes out to lunch with John to celebrate this news. And oh my gosh, the conversation gets so weird. Oh, it really does. Like John starts talking about how much he pities the waitresses and how awful their job is. And he talks about this awful story of him going to Paris with a couple of buddies of his and one of his friends raped a maid. Yep. And him and his other friend just sat there and watched it. And he started talking about how there is no love in this world. There is only lust. And I'm like, no. No, oh my God. you, there is no love in you because you are a messed up, twisted He's person. so awful. And he seems remorseful or disgusted with himself about that yeah. experience. I mean, at least he has a little bit of shame, but it's not doing him any good. No, he's not putting that shame to any use mm-hmm. to make himself better or to change at all. He's just wallowing in his shamefulness. Yeah. He is, oh, he is a gross person. Yeah, he really is. He's a brooder. He's the brooding type. That's why she loves him so much, because he's a brooding type. Uh, This movie spends quite a lot of time playing on stereotypes, and that's another stereotype. Women don't love brooders. There's nothing attractive about a man who broods. You're not attracted to a man who broods. Yeah, and I'm a woman, so that means the stereotype shouldn't be there, because it's not all women. Hashtag not all women. You could argue that no stereotype should ever exist. Yeah. But stereotypes are totally a thing. Stereotypes should not exist. I don't care if they are earned, and I fault myself for using stereotypes. Stereotypes are averages that are made to be extremes. So some women like brooding men. That doesn't mean all women like brooding men. It shouldn't be a stereotype. Well, when you're writing literature... I feel like it's a lot easier to start from a stereotype. Although, is it a stereotype or is it a character archetype? A woman who likes brooders? I think it's a stereotype of feminine behavior. I'm saying stereotypes are bad, and I'm pretty sure you're agreeing with me. Yeah. So stop using them. (laughs) 
You're always going to find situations in which the stereotype is correct, but that doesn't mean you get to use the stereotype. Okay. It means that that woman likes brooders, but then there's five women over here who don't. So Teresa likes brooders because she likes John. Guess so. All right. I don't know if that's a correlation or a causation. I don't know my terminology like that, but he is an incredibly disappointing, just piss poor person. I do not like Jonathan. I find it interesting that you use the word disappointing because at some point in the early days or weeks of their being together in London, she asks him if he is disappointed in her. Mm. I think it might even be the first day because he is broody and distant. And that made me sad because she is about a little older, you know, but about the same person that she was when they last saw each other. She hasn't changed really all that much. She was a budding modern woman before, and now she is more of a modern woman now, but she has progressed in her own arc. He has not. He is the one that should be disappointing. Mm -hmm. Her. But she is defensive and worried, so she feels that she is the disappointment. So elsewhere, James takes Teresa to an assembly of his bohemian friends, and one of the people there is this guy named Harry who you may remember me mentioning from the beginning of this movie. And he is there talking about the political situation in Spain and how dire things are over there and how he wants to go over there and help them and how if people want to help him help Spain, that they should give him money to help him go and all this other stuff. And as she's formally introduced the Harry, I'm not quite sure what's going on because I've spent this whole movie wondering when Harry was going to re-enter the scene. And here he is now. And of course, he was the one that she went to Oxford with at the beginning of the movie. So I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Yeah, I was a little confused by his presence or lack of presence up until this point. Yeah. Back before I saw the movie with just the description of what was going to happen, I assumed that the movie was going to be a love triangle between Teresa's character and the cute professor Johnny and the more serious subdued James. And that's not what it was at all. So this introduction right away of this third man, Harry, I was waiting for him to come back and play his part in the love square now and he never did for a long time. Considering that we start off the movie with her and Harry going together somewhere and sleeping together and doing all this stuff, he's an incredibly small part of this movie. And I think that wasn't great. I think he should have played a slightly bigger part. Only slightly. I appreciate that he is this character on the peripheral, that he doesn't play a big part, but they only get like two scenes together before they run away together for the mm -hmm. night. It's weird. It is. Because James's friends are a bit bohemian they joke about him being a socialist and when james takes Teresa out to dinner he gets his own instance to complain a little bit he thinks that new york is much better than london and that Teresa would have really thrived in new york with the american sensibilities as opposed to the dying english sensibilities i don't remember that conversation was i not paying attention possibly it was a long movie yeah i don't recall that conversation at all following her dinner with james Teresa goes back and visits John and they talk about what they always talk about, love and marriage and all this stuff. And John is so adamantly opposed to the idea of marriage, this idea of someone owning another person. It's just very melodramatic. He's just so over the top every time he opens his mouth. He seems to think that everything that women do is to serve their end goal of owning a man. And he doesn't see any value in women at all. Even when it comes to physical needs and lust, 
he acknowledges that it exists, but he seems to hate it. But then, as we will see soon, he succumbs to it, just like everybody else does. Yeah, Teresa is sitting there with John, and he's like, you should go. I am expecting company soon. Which and- it's clear why he's expecting company. He is expecting a woman to stay the night. And so Teresa leaves and she walks downstairs and she puts on her hat, but she doesn't leave the building just yet. She kind of hides around a corner and she watches as the housekeeper comes out of her room, goes up the stairs, knocks on John's door and then goes inside and they're like giggling and laughing to themselves or something like that. Mm -hmm. He is very clearly carrying on with Teresa in one way and carrying on with the housekeeper in a very different way. And Teresa does not like this. I suppose I think she's a bit naive that he isn't carrying on with other people in that way, that he's not sleeping around. Mm-hmm. She genuinely is surprised that he is sleeping around. It didn't surprise me at all. There was an earlier conversation that I forgot to mention where John was telling Teresa about this American woman that he became involved with and she did not want him because of his low status. Yeah, reinforcing all of his assumptions about love and marriage. So after Teresa witnesses the maid, which I cannot remember her name. It's like Rita or something. I don't know. Like that. She turns to James. Yeah, he's waiting for her on her doorstep when she gets back because he just wanted to see her. And she is upset because of what she's seen. So he takes her out for coffee. And he's a good friend to her. Yeah. He doesn't try and take advantage of her youth or her inexperience. And he also doesn't coddle her. He tells it pretty straight. Like, this is the sort of man that he is. And you see him as something else and you're wrong. And you need to open your eyes and see him for what he really is. And she's really upset with this whole idea. Like, oh, she devoted so much of her time to this guy. And he's just letting her down at every bend. I do really appreciate, though, that she's ready to walk away from Johnny. Mm -hmm. She says, we have a date to go for a walk on Saturday and that'll be it. She's going to give him one last chance. Yep. And if he proves himself the same, then she'll be done. And so we get this scene of them walking through... The lovely English countryside? Yeah, next to what looks like a bubbling bog or something like that. Nowhere near as nice as Australia. Yeah. And because it's England, a rainstorm comes in. Yep. And so they run off to this old decrepit mill. It reminds me of a movie that we have discussed before, The Quiet Man. Mm-hmm. Prior to, we've we discussed it in the context of the fight scene at the very end. But there's also a courtship scene where John Wayne's character is out basically on a date with his soon-to-be fiancé, and they ditch their chaperone, and they're walking through the lovely Irish countryside and get caught in a storm because, yeah. And it's a very romantic scene. They find shelter, and they're drenched, and they're cold, and he's warming her in his arms, and they kiss, and it's very romantic. And that opens up, you know, the future for them. So that's kind of what you expect to happen Mm -hmm. when they find this old sawmill to find shelter in. And it's interesting, the mechanism of the sawmill is so old and rusted and john's like oh this is never gonna turn again and teresa's like oh you know you never know it might it might turn again as sort of a metaphor for their relationship where john is so fatalistic and Teresa is still hopeful and so as the evening progresses the storm of course gets 
heavier and the water level begins to rise and as they're sitting there by candlelight the mill starts to turn again and john is just totally not interested in any of this metaphorical stuff and so he's like oh i guess we should probably get some sleep and so Teresa tries to cuddle up to him yeah and he has such contempt for her yeah once again it's a woman doing the typical woman thing which is not true the stereotype is that the men can't keep their hands to themselves and he treats her like it's the female female stereotype that women can't keep their hands to themselves completely ignoring the fact that she has been enamored with him for years this isn't her just coming up out of nowhere and trying to get handsy with him she's been pining after him for so long this isn't a flash in the pan this isn't a floozy thing like she has an affection for him and he just brushes her off like some sort of tart or something like that i don't know and it's here and i actually had to ask you what was going on because i was writing notes and then she did something and i had to ask what just happened there's a hole in the floor or something like that yeah before that they're still lying next to each other and he's complaining about women and he reveals that he had a bet going with one of his buddies on how long he could string her along and that she wasn't the only one and that she lasted longer than anybody else Mm mm-hmm So back when they were looking at the stack of pictures and he was kind of mocking these other girls that had remembered him and sent him their picture, her comment was, well, you asked for mine. I'm willing to bet he asked for all of them. Yeah. Because he was stringing along as many girls as he could to see how long they would last. And of course, Teresa outlasted them all. And she is understandably furious. Yeah. There was a conversation before she left Australia that she had with her family. She was talking about this idea of honor and how she has honor that she perceives within herself, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Like she has a sense of personal honor and that she would defend that honor to the point of taking a life. Yes. And her dad laughs at her. And she tries to choke him. So in this instance, she has just discovered that John has made a mockery of her honor. And so she looks at this hole in the floor and she tries to push him into it. Yep. And he looks very surprised. I mean, she didn't come close to succeeding. No. But he realizes what she just tried to do and is surprised and bewildered. But it doesn't go beyond that. He doesn't feel repentant or remorseful at all. And she runs out of the sawmill. She leaves him behind. And that's basically the last we see of him. Mm -hmm. The last time he's a real character in the story. Teresa goes to James and James basically says, John is a garbage person. You don't need to waste your time on him anymore. And... Teresa's like, yeah, I guess you're right. And James is doing this song and dance that he's been doing over the course of the movie that I don't think we've brought up yet. This whole like, oh, if I could find a woman who loves me like you love John, I would fall to my knees and kiss the hem of her skirt and something like that. Basically, he's been dropping not so subtle hints that he feels something for Teresa. Yeah. And it's here in this instance, after he's taken her in out of the rain and given her a robe to wear and a towel to dry off with, and they're sitting in front of the fire and he's bringing this subject up again and she's like no i'm pretty sure i love you i kind of like his reply i think his reply is romantic he says i know you do and i've wondered for a while 
if you know you do. So he knew it before she did, Mm -hmm. which I appreciate because it shows he was paying attention. Yeah, they have an interesting power dynamic because he is older than her. Mm -hmm. He is her boss. Yep. And so in his actions, yeah, he took her out to lunch. He introduced her to his friends, but... He never actively pursued her in the typical romantic fashion no, that was, I would see in a movie. He was always very appropriate. And so after this revelation, we flash forward to a lunch party or something between James and all of his friends. And he officially announces that he has divorced his ex-wife. Their separation is now official. And now that their separation is official, he and Teresa have intentions to marry. You can tell some time has passed. Teresa seems distinctly more grown up. Mm -hmm. And that may just be a consequence of being partnered with James. She has more money now. Yeah, she's much more secure. So she has money to get her hair done. She has money for makeup. She has money for nicer clothes. Mm. She's always been a good dresser, even in times of poverty. She just has good taste in clothes. But the outfit that she's wearing at that dinner is decidedly more luxurious. Yeah. So everyone at the table is very congratulatory to James and Teresa. And one man in particular, Harry, the guy going to Spain, congratulates her by planting a very deep kiss on her lips. Yeah. Across the table with James standing right there. Yeah. It was very bizarre. It completely came out of the blue, Mm. which is what my problem is with his character. There should have been at least another scene in between when they first met back in the bar to now when they almost accidentally share this moment. Yeah. That it just felt so out of the blue. I wanted something else so that it would make a little bit more sense. And then the woman that is there with Harry is very incensed by this display. And so Harry runs off elsewhere and James talks to this woman and he's like, the Freudians would say that you're driving him into the arms of other women or something like that. And she's like, he's just going to Spain to get away from me. And well, that's a decent chance of that. She's an interesting character whose name I can't remember. Yeah. (laughs) I think we get it once and she's never referred to again. Yeah. Later that like later we see that James and Teresa are in bed. She has moved in with James. Oh, yeah. And they are now a modern woman. Yeah. So they are in his bed and James pretty much tells Teresa there is going to be a time where other men love you as I love you. And the only thing I ask is that you continue to love me. Basically what he's telling her is that he doesn't mind an open marriage as long as she returns to him. I wonder if he's saying this because he knows how much of a romantic she is at heart and Uh, that she is 15 years younger than him. So she might still want to go out there and see parts of the world. I think yes. In addition to, he saw that kiss too. Mm -hmm. So I think he's preparing himself for the eventuality that their tensions will come to a head. Yeah. So it's at this point here at the end that we flash forward back to Teresa sitting by the window and she returns to the bed where Harry is sleeping and the morning progresses. They have lunch in the room and they have this little conversation about, you know, if this is going to be a thing, you call off your trip to Spain, I'll call off the wedding. And that'll be that. And Harry decides that he's still going to go to Spain. And Teresa returns to James in London. And when she gets back to London, she reassures James that she does indeed love him. And I have to wonder if this is her getting to a point where she now recognizes that love and sex are two different things. And that while they can exist together, they are not mutually exclusive. Because what she did with Harry was sex. 
Yes. What she has with James is that love that she has been pining for. I didn't love the ending because James, who has been a relatively self-assured character this whole movie, all of a sudden feels small and insignificant and begging her to love him. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the flip. He seems a little nervous to greet her. It's very clear he knows exactly why she stayed in Oxford an extra night. Yeah. She says that she sent a letter back to her home and her friends and her family saying that they were unexpectedly delayed in Oxford. Of course, not telling anybody that they were shacking up. He knows. Yeah. He knows exactly what's going on. And he seems a little sheepish. Well, I think what he's doing is he's looking for that confirmation that she does still love him the way that he loves her. He's looking at this situation and be like, okay, I have love. I let it go out into the world and now it is returning to me. Is it really returning to me? Mm -hmm. He wants that reassurance because he already was in a situation once before where the love just wasn't there. Yes. And so this final scene where Therese is there and she's reassuring him, yes, the love is there. And I'm assuming some time passes because the next time we see them, they are on the steps of the courthouse and they have gotten married to each other. Yeah. I like the contrast in weddings. We start with a wedding, we close with a wedding, but they're so different. Yeah. The first one is a show. It's all about expectation. Yes. Which is one of the things when we got married that really turned me off. My wedding, my wedding, our wedding was (laughs) not about us at all. No. It was about everybody else. And that's what that opening wedding on the boat was about. It was about everybody else. The wedding at the end, it was about them. And that's the kind of wedding I wish we had had. What I like about that final shot is that Teresa and James, they come down the steps and James is like, I better get a taxi because it's pouring out. And they've all got their umbrellas. And Teresa looks across the street and she sees John. And he's got this big black coat that he's been wearing. And he's got this wide brim hat. And he just looks miserable. And he doesn't see her. He's not there to see her get married or anything like that. He's just walking down the street. And she spies him. And I think she realizes that his misery is of his own making. Yeah. And she's not a part of that misery anymore. Mm -hmm. She is free to be happy and to love and be loved in a way that he never will be. Yeah. That man is never going to feel affection for anything or anybody. But she now has James and she's got a situation where she's very assured. And you know what? It's a happy ending. It is a happy ending. Here at the end of our summary, do you have a favorite thing that stands out from this movie? I think my favorite thing is the concept of the movie as a whole. In the train station, when Teresa returns to James and she is reassuring him that she is indeed in love with him, the entire movie was working up to answering that one question. And the overall story of her love life leads her to this one place where she can say with confidence that she is in love with James. And I really like that. I think my favorite part of this movie is just the character of Teresa and how she starts off very bright eyed. And then as she gets older, she works towards the goal very deliberately. And then as she learns things, she eventually comes out on top. I really like watching Helen Bidet's portrayal of this character. And I think she was a great choice as the main character, pretty much anchor of this movie. Oh, yes. 
something that I noticed throughout the whole movie, we have these two mainstays of Hollywood with Sam Neill and Hugo Weaving, who have done some really phenomenal work in their careers. And they can seriously act. Mm -hmm. And the people that they were acting alongside were right up there with them. It was a terrifically acted film. I have a lot of additional appreciation for Helen Bidet after watching this movie. I agree. Was there anything that stood out as your least favorite thing in this movie? My least favorite thing, and this isn't so much a criticism of the movie as a natural byproduct of the necessary plot, was watching Teresa suffer under the treatment of Johnny. Mm. It was really hard to watch, and it was important for her and her development to go through that. But just every time he opened his mouth, he was just stomping on her and stomping on her bright-eyed optimism of the world and just bringing her down. Mm -hmm. It was sad to see her that way. Is there anything you can put your finger on that was your least favorite? I was not a big fan of the way they opened the movie with her and Harry going off to Oxford. It felt like a misdirection on the storytelling part. Like, I started off thinking one thing. I spent the entire movie expecting Harry to play a bigger part. I thought that the story was going to be that Teresa starts off pining after Jonathan, she moves on to James, and the things that she learns from James would lead to her being with Harry, and that this is a lifelong thing. But then when Harry turns out to be more of a non- entity in the movie, I found the whole framing device of the movie it threw me off. And I think that might be the thing I like the least. I mean, sure, every time John opens his mouth, I want to smack him. But just what the opener did to me in my expectation as I was watching the movie, I didn't like how it started and how little of a effect it had in the overall narrative. Like, I will admit, it was important for Teresa to get to that point where she realized, you know, physical attention is one thing, but what I have with James is true love or however you want to word it. But it just threw me off. Do you think that it should have been Johnny that she ran away with? No, because he's a terrible, terrible person, and I don't want him to have that bit of joy in his life. I think he's dug himself in a hole, and I didn't want to see Teresa pull him out of that hole at all. I wanted to see her get out of his pit of misery, but I'm more than willing to just let him wallow in his own... <laughs> self-made pit. Do you think it would have fixed that scene for you if Harry had played a larger role in the plot overall? Probably, because that's what I was expecting to see. But it's not a terrible thing when a movie subverts your expectations. Like, I had a lot of expectations for a lot of the movies that we've seen over these hiatus episodes. And sometimes those expectations get subverted, and that's fine. But it just was such a distraction to me that if Harry had come in sooner or played a bigger role or done like that, it probably would have helped me get on board with the plot easier. Okay. Or at least stopped me from wondering when X was going to happen. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, do you have any final thoughts would you recommend this? Would you recommend something else? What do you think? I would recommend this, I think. I think it deserves analysis and repeated viewings. I think just watching it once isn't enough. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of deeper meaning about love versus lust to be read in amongst the plot that I think would be strengthened upon repeated viewings. So if you enjoy the movie, put it in your rotation of favorite movies. Okay. I'm not typically the kind of person that will watch a romance movie. So I wouldn't necessarily say that this would go into my rotation of movies that I would just watch on a whim. But I don't feel like the time that we spent watching this movie was wasted. 
good. I feel like it is a comprehensive narrative that starts with a character at one point in their life and by the end of the movie they have learned things, they have changed, they have adapted their behavior based on the experience they had. I'm very satisfied by that. And I like that even though Teresa has these ideals in her mind, these sort of aspirations in her life that she doesn't sit by and be a neutral player in her own story. She's very active. She's very determined. I really like that in her character. So I could definitely recommend sitting down, pulling it up on YouTube and just watching it for a while. Specifically the one hour and 37 minutes of the actual movie. You can skip the next 20 or so minutes of that YouTube video because it's just <laughs> whatever was on TV after that. Yeah. So that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. We are going to be coming back in a couple weeks time with a another Patreon requested movie. So stay tuned for that and we will see you next time. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions and distributed by Warner Brothers. For Love Alone is presented by UAA Films. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time. Bye.